Gospel of John, chapter number three. Tonight we want to teach uh, not from Hebrews, but I want to teach on perspectives of God's love and maybe give us some insight to God's love that may be somewhat different than what we've thought about before. But John 3.16, this will be the, the, the base verse, but there will be a number of verses that we will look at. And John 3.16, we all know this. You can quote it by heart, I'm sure. So come on, let's say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in me should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, come on, let's quote it in the NASB now. Oh, we, oh, we seem like we always memorize that one in the KJV, don't we? That's one verse of scripture that's known around the world in that way. So perspectives on God's love. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We love you. We are happy that another evening we can spend together in your word. We pray that you would speak to all of our hearts and just really give us insight how you love us and how we should love others. Uh, this we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. As a definition, love is a deep and tender feeling of affection that a person can have for one individual or for more than one individual. But I think if there's anything that we can say about love is that it's impossible to possess it without expressing it. Love is something that has to be shown. You cannot have it for someone or toward someone without it manifesting. It's the same way with hatred. If you have some kind of hatred in your heart or enmity or bitterness or hostility towards someone, some place or something, I can assure you over a period of time it will manifest itself. Because love is a fruit of the spirit, but hatred, strife, things like that, it's certainly a work of the flesh. But it all manifests itself is what I'm trying to, to get at. John 3.16 is important because if the scripture says God so loved, the, the writer John is saying, uh, in this way or by this much, God demonstrated his love. Then he gives the example. He gave his only begotten son. If he was willing to give his only begotten son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, then what would we be willing to give ourselves? I think most of us are selfish enough that we would not want to sacrifice one of our own children or grandchildren for someone else. If people were going off to war and the draft was instated, there are a lot of parents, and I'm sure a lot of parents who did say back during the Vietnam War and things like that, well, why do they have to take my son? See? It's only natural. It's a, it's a feeling or affection that people have towards someone that they care about. But God's love for people, his love for the world, was greater than his desire to maintain the life of his son. Now that's an amazing thing to think about. And this then says, because of that demonstration of love, Whoever believes receives something. That's everlasting life. So somebody had to die in order to receive uncreated life, unending life. Out of death comes resurrection life. But resurrection life is preceded by death. We all enjoy the resurrection, but the resurrection has to be preceded by Calvary. 
but Calvary will be followed by the resurrection. So Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. So he's saying die to self-will, die to selfishness, die to your own desires. But know that on the other side of your own individual death, as you're allowing yourself to be crucified in him, that there is a resurrection of God's life inside of you. And part of that life that's manifested through this new life that you have is love. So the Bible says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I, but it's Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But there's no better demonstration of God's love than the example that he gave in giving of his son. So we're in John 3. Let's go to John 15 now. I said, and I'll repeat it several times, that it's impossible to possess love without expressing love. If two people are in love, then those two individuals are going to show love to one another. We'll look at verse 9. When I fell in love with Tiffany, I demonstrated my love toward her by my actions. Now in the Middle East, in Arabic, people don't use the phrase, I fell in love. They say, love fell into my heart. See, love fell into my heart towards an individual, towards a particular Place, But whenever we fall into love or love falls into our heart, there is an immediate influence that begins to take place. And it's little things that we do. Most of it has something to do with a sacrificial kind of love. Look at John 15, verse number nine. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. Continue in it. This is a command. We call that an imperative. God tells you to do something. It's, it's imperative that you do this. Continue in my love. It, it's up to you. It's a choice that you can make. You can choose to walk in love or you can choose not to walk in love. But here's the example. Jesus says to the disciples, in the manner in which the father loved me, I have loved you. He's saying that my treatment of you, my relation with you, my affection towards you is similar to the father's affection towards me. So what he's done for me, I've transferred that to you. Now That's a powerful thing because the scripture tells husbands, it says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So if Jesus loved his disciples as the father loved him. And then the scripture says that we should love our wives as Christ loved the church. Then we have our model. Our model is Jesus. He's the one that sets the example of what it is that we should do. What is the manifestation of Christ's love for his church? He died. So what is the manifestation of a husband's love for his wife? He dies to his desires, to his self-will, in order that the church or his bride would be made holy or beautiful in the presence of people. See, that's, that's what this thing is all about. So this is a comparative statement then in verse 9. In the manner that the Father demonstrated his love, I want you to know I've loved you the exact same way. And that should be something we as Christians could say. That I'm loving you as the Lord loved the church. Look at verse 13. It says, Greater love has no man than this, 
that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, now that's taking it to another level now. Many people are willing to die for God. There are not a, pe- not a lot of people willing to die for friends. You understand that? Uh, the, the, the stuff we see around the world with the people putting on suicide vests and killing each other, they're willing to die for God. But I don't know that they'll do that for a neighbor. But even in the military, there's such a thing called uh, camaraderie. And when you develop relationship with someone in your platoon or somebody who's in your regiment, somehow or another, there is this one thing, this one piece of thread that operates in everybody's life, and it's that little military thing, and it doesn't matter where you've come from, what city you're from, how much money you have, but you can walk into a room with a lot of people who formerly were in the military, formerly from a place you were from, and if you have that one common bond, the same branch of service or just having served, you, you find somebody that, that very often is willing to die for a friend. That's, that's Christianity. That, that principle is what it is. And the Lord said, there is no love that's greater than this, than somebody who would lay down his life for his friends. So you then have to ask the question, what kind of friends would you be willing to die for? Because Paul says in the book of Romans that for a righteous man, people are willing to die. But for a sinner, scarcely will you find somebody that will die. That means that the worst rogue on the planet, most of you don't want to sacrifice your life for them. But for somebody that's nice, you're willing to to put your life on the line. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Well, I thought in the New Testament we didn't have commandments. We have one to walk in to walk in love. And, And he says that. As I have loved you, that's that's absolutely essential. So greater love has nobody no man than this, than he that lays his life down for his friends. So keeping your finger here, let's go to 1 John, towards the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Now this is interesting too. And we're going to start with verse 13, and we want to look at how John describes love again in one of his smaller epistles. 1 John 3, verse number 13. Marvel not or do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. It, shouldn't, it should not shock you the kinds of things that people say about Christians on television or radio or in the public sphere. It's just... They're antagonistic towards Christianity because of what the name Jesus represents. It represents salvation. It represents salvation from sin. If you mention Jesus' name, that implies there's a Savior. If you mention there's a Savior, that implies there are sinners. And and that, that creates hostility. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that does not love his brother abides in death. Love, then, is the essential ingredient that tells us whether or not there's been an effective change in the believer's life. How can I be a Christian and be so full of hatred, so full of hatred, so hostile towards 
towards people. But notice it's the word here. It says because we love the brethren. Now brethren in the Bible typically is used or should say only used to speak of saints, people that have been redeemed. You don't find anywhere in the Bible where sinners are referred to as brethren, even though we like to talk about all of us are God's children. I mean, that's a, that's a nice statement. Not a scriptural statement, but it's a very nice statement. It's kind of like the, the one time when I heard a, a politician asked, they, they said to him, uh, what's your favorite scripture verse in the Bible? And the politician thought about it for a little while, and he the reporter was trying to help him because he saw he was struggling a little bit. And so the politician, he just said, he said, I always thought that one of the best ones in the Bible was God helps those that help themselves. Now, that's a nice thought. OK, <laughs> but that's not in the Bible. That's, it's just not in the scripture. So sometimes we have things that are said over and over again that have nothing to do with the Bible. But sometimes they do make sense. But in First John three, look at verse 15. Whosoever hated his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, later on, the example is going to be used of Cain. Cain murdered his own brother. Now, you have to be pretty angry to kill your own blood kin out of jealousy. As far as the Bible is concerned, there had never been a murder committed. The only death they possibly saw was the, the sacrifice of an animal. So the only blood Cain had ever seen shed was that of an animal. But can you imagine rising up against your own brother and killing him and leaving his body in the field? That's what he did. Yeah, that's what he did. I've been mad that my brothers and wanted to do that, but I did not do that. But the, the scripture here says, whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now, now that's interesting because the Lord makes it very plain that hatred in our heart towards a brother makes us a murderer, even if we haven't pulled a knife out and killed somebody. If I'm sitting in the room with you, in the sanctuary with you, on the couch with you, in the car with you, but I absolutely despise you. Just, oh, just, oh, just, it burns me that, that you're alive. Then, then the scripture says, I'm, I'm like a man that's gone out uh, and, and robbed a place and shot two or three people in the process of trying to get away. And this is why the scripture says, guard your heart, for out of it comes the issues of life. You have to do what you can to put some kind of fence around your heart because that's where your emotions are at. And your actions are going to follow your emotions. If you allow yourself to be uh, angry all the time and you're thinking about things that make you upset, pretty soon your actions are going to follow that. If you think about things that... that you know, over and over again, it'll make you excessively sorrowful and sad. I mean, you're going to follow your emotions. And, and you, have to, you have to look at that. Love is the one thing that the scripture says, casts out all fear. The Greek word for fear is phobias. Get rid of phobias? Fear. Children are afraid of some people because they don't know them very often. There's no relationship with them sometimes. Or sometimes what they know of the individual is enough to cause them to want to stay away from that person. So the only way to break the fear factor, you've got to somehow build a bridge or some kind of connection through a relationship that will cause love to pass from one to the other. And as the love passes from one to the other, then all of a sudden the ice breaks and now we can hug, we can shake hands, and we don't mind being around each other. It's, it's a powerful thing. And this is why there's so many sibling rivalries and sibling problems 
in, in families, even where Christianity is said to be in the hearts of the brothers and the sisters. So we all claim to be saved. We all claim to know God. But I can't stand you and you can't stand me, and it's just better we just go our separate ways. But I mean, that's not the way God wants us to do this as, as Christians. <clears throat> we all have people in our lives that we would rather uh, see not living across the street, but maybe on the other side of the country in the wilderness of Alaska or something like that. But, but if, if they come in the room and they're there with you, it shouldn't cause your blood to boil in such a way that you lose your religion over somebody. There's no human on this earth that is worth you losing your relationship with God for. Nobody. Mm -mm. Look at verse number 16. Hereby perceive... So we can recognize or discern the love of God because he laid down his life for us. There's that example again. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we saw earlier, greater love has nobody than this who laid down his lives for his friends. Now we discover this thing becomes even narrower. We should be willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. You should be willing to die for me. I should be willing to die for you. At the rate some places of this world are going, this becomes more than just a scripture you read. This becomes a reality. Christians die every day because of their faith in God. Yeah. You, you see these stories of people beheaded. I don't doubt that some of the people who've lost their lives in the past few years in different places in Russia, China, the Middle East, probably have died because some father decided to go outside and give himself up to communist authorities or some radical group rather than allow his wife and kids to be discovered who's hiding in a room somewhere. You understand that? There's something, there's something innate to a guy or a gal to, to sacrifice themselves for their children. Mothers will do it in a heartbeat if there's something trying to get at their, their kid. I have a friend of mine named Janet. <clears throat> we lived in Saudi Arabia. Years ago, she told me a story I've never forgotten. It was her husband telling me the story, and he was saying how his wife is afraid of wasps and bees. And he said they were living, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they were in Kuwait at the time. And he said that their firstborn, David, the boy was born, and said while they were over there, somehow or another, a bee got in the house. And he said that bee chased Janet all over that house. And she was running, and she was screaming, and all of this stuff was going on. But he said somehow or another that bee redirected itself and flew into the room where that firstborn was in that crib. And he said Janet forgot all about her fear and went in there and gave that bee a headache. And said, he said, when, the way he described it, he said when she walked out, she walked out like, see how bad I am? See, see. See, there's something in us that, that is willing to sacrifice for, for things and for people that are important to us. And that's, that's what happened in that instance. Let, let's go over to 1 Peter. Uh, I'm going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. You can take your finger out of uh, the Gospel of John. We'll just go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And notice verse number... <clears throat> Eighteen. Let me make sure I've got the right one here. 
mean that. Peter. First Peter one. First Peter one eighteen. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain traditions received excuse me, vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Okay, now here, here's the thing. From the foundation of the world, Jesus was predetermined to die. That was First Peter uh, 1, verse 18. Jesus was predetermined to die, but we run into all of these verses that tell us that his death is the example of what it means for us to actually be Christian, to be sacrificial. But, but there is something, though, in, in connection with this relationship with God that's called conditional love. If you really love the Lord, you demonstrate it by the way you conduct yourself. Well, let's go back to John anyhow, the Gospel of John. See, I said take your finger off. Go to John 14. <laughs> go back to John 14. Okay, John 14, look at verse number 15. Now, this is going to be a very, very good point I'm going to work on now because we, we're going to talk about this idea of conditional and unconditional love. I'm going to demonstrate what it is and what it is not. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what he says. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and will come unto him and make our abode with him. So on two occasions in those verses, you can see that our love is manifested by what we do. That's John 14, verse 15, and John 14, verse 23. I can say every day I love Tiffany, but if I don't show her that I love her, then my words really don't matter. And there are a lot of people that say, look, I love God. God knows that I love him. He and I, we're all right. I, I know I'm not perfect and I don't do everything that I, don't, that I should do. I don't read the Bible. I don't like gospel music. I don't like fellowshipping with saints. I don't care anything about church. I mean, just look, I try to be nice to people. But let's go back to what the Lord says, though. If you love me, keep my commandments. There are some conditional things that we can do on our part, but God loves us unconditionally. And I've had this conversation with many, many people who, who don't understand this because they'll say, well, I just think I, I told my family members that when they grew up, I would give them unconditional love. That there's nothing they could do to ever change my love and there's nothing they could ever do that would stop me from going all the way with them. And I've said to people over and over again, I said, the only person I know of that's ever exhibited unconditional love is God. There's not a human on this planet that can even do it. We can try. And so I, I use this example. I say, let's suppose, let's suppose your son or your daughter grows up <clears throat> and comes of an age when they decide they just want to go against every virtue you've ever taught them and just live contrary to everything you've ever explained to them. I said, what would you do? So I just love them no matter what. I said, okay. I said, let's suppose they then go out and maybe they get involved with uh, a bad group of people. Say they start running with a crowd that's you know, getting involved doing drugs and things like that. And 
And I said, so one night somebody gives you a call at home and says, uh, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, I, I don't know if you know this, but your son or your daughter is over at such and such house, and I think they're doing drugs in there, and I think maybe uh, I saw your, your uh, child staggering around in the backyard, and it, last time I looked, it looks like they fell out in the garden, and they're just back there, and they hadn't gotten up. And I said, well, what would you do then? So I go get my kid. I said, of course you would. Go get your kid, bring the kid back home, do what you can to try to explain to them that's not a good lifestyle, it's not the right thing to do. <clears throat> then I made it a bit more personal because I've actually seen this happen, what I'm talking to you about. I said, then let's suppose they get arrested. And they get arrested for some kind of drug offense and they're in jail. They got to have somebody post bond. What would you do? I go right down there, I post bond for my child. Okay. So one day you go to work and you come home and when you walk into your house, step up through the door, come into the living room, you walk in there and everything is gone. So what do you mean by everything? I mean everything. I mean your, your child has sold every stitch of furniture that you have in that house for drugs, just giving it away. I've seen people do this. I said, what would you do now? How would you, how would you react? So I'd be mad. I'm sure I'd be unhappy, but I'd, I'd steal I still love my child. I said, of course you would. You're not supposed to stop loving the child. But I said, what would you do to get your stuff back? I said, I don't know. I said, okay, so suppose the date came up for the child to be in court and the child missed the court date and you put your mortgage, your house up for bond. A lot of parents have lost their homes because a son and daughter missed their court date. I said, you're homeless now. They're out there doing drugs, and you're staying with some friends or somebody else, or you've got an apartment. I said, how, how are you going to act now if they come knocking on your door? Are you going to let them in? I'm going to love the child despite how they conduct themselves. Now, they're doing good right now because I'm telling you, I know my dad. See, I know my dad. My dad wouldn't have been letting one of my brothers or siblings come through the door if something like that would have happened. He'd have been too angry and upset at the time. So I said, well, let's, let's go as far as we can with this. I said, let's suppose your son is in a drug-related problem. Somebody ends up pulling out a gun, and your child kills somebody. You get the call. They're down in jail. The trial comes up. The, the uh, jury finds the child guilty and says, and says, so-and-so is going to be sentenced to 12 to 25 years for the taking of somebody's life. <clears throat> I said, here's, here's what I want to know. I said, because you say you have unconditional love. There are no conditions with your love. I said, when the, when the judge slams that gavel down and says, I sentence you to 12 years, I said, would you stand up in that courtroom and say, Your Honor, I know that my child has not lived an exemplary life and has done a lot of things that are not nice. However, if you'd be so kind, I love that child, and I'd like to go to jail and do all of his or her time for him or her. I said, would you do that? I said, absolutely not. If you do the crime, you got to do the time. I said, that's the difference with God. See, God loves us unconditionally. He gave his only begotten son who had never done any sin, who knew no sin, but yet we were guilty of sin. And he came and suffered the penalty and paid the price in our place. 
He suffered it all. He received the penalty that should have come to you, that should have come to me. And the scripture says on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And the Bible makes it very plain. He had all power in his hands. And think about the beating that he took. He didn't deserve it. That's unconditional love. You see, That's unconditional love. For somebody to take another person's place and then decide this is exactly what I'm going to do, even though I'm not guilty of it. That's the difference. And as I've said, I, I've never met anybody that's ever told me I'd be willing to go do 20 years for something somebody else did. But yet that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's unconditional. Well, let's go to Leviticus then. Let's go to Leviticus 19. That was expressive love. Let's look at reproving love. Because some people think that if you walk in love, that means you are never, ever supposed to point out what is wrong. Or you're never, ever supposed to say to someone, that is wrong, this is right. So this is how our society is today. They think if, if you truly are a person of love, you're going to just accept any and everything that's done. And if you ever express discontent or disappointment with something, then you're a hater, you're narrow-minded. Leviticus 19, let's look at verse number 17. Very simple verse. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in your heart, but you shalt in any wise rebuke your neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Now that's love. If, if you know what I'm doing is wrong, love me enough to tell me. If, if I'm out here robbing homes in the middle of the night <clears throat> and you see me creeping in and out of people's properties, taking things, if, if you do love me, I mean, come to me and say, what you are doing is wrong. Because if you don't, then you can already predict my future. I'm, I'm either going to be in jail, going to end up shot. Nothing good is going to happen. Th there is the story of, of David, and I'll tell you this story. It's from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12. And David fell in love with a woman named Bathsheba. And this is a good story because this shows you that, that you can fall in love with the wrong person. This is, this is what our society hadn't picked up on. You, you can fall in love with the wrong person. Remember the story of David? Not David, but uh, Amnon and his sister Tamar. He fell in love with his own sister. Okay, that's, that's, that's not good. It's a bad thing. But that's what happened. I don't deny that he loved her. I'm just saying that it's not his affection was directed in the wrong, in, in the wrong, in the wrong direction. So David gets up one night, and he's on the rooftop, and he looks over, and I guess his palace was, the rooftop was high enough, he can look over into his neighbor's rooftop, and he saw a beautiful lady, she's bathing, and her name is Bathsheba, and so, of course, David, he, he, we, don't, we don't want to think he planned to be out there walking around on the rooftop. Scripture says he should have been out at war, but he's on the rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba, and then he goes downstairs, and he says, can somebody tell me who this pretty neighbor of mine is? I know he knew who she was. He, he said, who, who is this? And they told him, and he, he then said, okay, somebody bring her to me. Now, who wants to deny the king? Nobody wants to deny the king. So David then, he goes and he, he requests that uh, Bathsheba comes. Bathsheba comes and he, I guess he wines and dines or whatever, 
in the world it is that he did. But they, they ended up spending the evening together. Yes. And after he was done with her, he sent her home. Well, a few months later, word came back to him, which obviously had to come from Bathsheba. Uh, King, I'm pregnant with your seed. Oh, my. Wheels are turning now. We got to start figuring out how to fix this thing real quick. Uh, Somebody please get Uriah, her husband, back here as soon as possible so he can spend some time with her. And if Uriah spends some time with her, then maybe he'll believe when the baby is born that he's the dad. So Uriah is brought back from the military front. He comes home. Uriah doesn't even go into the house and sleep with his wife. He sleeps on the porch. And Uriah says the next day, how can I go in and spend the evening with my wife when everybody else is on the front battle lines and they're intense? How can I go sleep comfortably in my bed? So he slept on the porch. So now David is angry. So plan A has failed. Plan A Cause Uriah to think he's the dad. So let's go with plan B. Plan B is, let's just kill Uriah. So David gets his generals in there, and he gets a runner, and he writes a letter, and he says, um, this is how we ought to do this. And he, and he tells Uriah, he says, now Uriah, here's a letter. It's sealed. It's got the king's seal on it. I need you to take this letter to the generals on the front line, and everything's going to be good. Now Uriah has no idea he's carrying Telegram of his death. He, he didn't even bother to open it. That's how faithful a man he was. He never sat up under a tree and said, let me read this thing. He took it to the general. The general put Uriah on the front line. Uriah lost his life. So now David is happy. Bathsheba is grieving. But within a few moments or a few months, Bathsheba is now in the house of David and this, this man, David, of course, he's, he's got Bathsheba there, and he's got these other ladies that are part of his, his uh, uh, relationship. And, and, and he's still, oh my, he's in the tabernacle, and, and he's worshiping God, and he's singing songs. And the people in Israel are just thinking, oh, he, oh don't we have such a reverent king? This man is godly. They don't know what's going on. This man is godly. So God says to Nathan, the prophet, in 2 Samuel 12, he said, I want you to go and talk to David and tell him this parable. So Nathan does. He goes to King David. He said, King, there's somebody in your kingdom who had a visitor that came and said this visitor was a little bit hungry from from the journey and said his host had a big sheepfold, had a huge flock. But he said, rather than him taking of his own sheep and sacrificing the sheep for the visitor that's come, he found one of his neighbors who had one little sheep that was brought up at the table as a pet, and all the kids liked him, and the mom and dad liked him. And he took that sheep, and then that one sheep he killed for the visitor. And and Nathan said, well, what do you think ought to be done? Oh, you know, David got angry, pounded his fist. He said, that person ought to have to restore fourfold. I can't believe somebody would be that that evil and not take pity or show mercy or show love to someone. And then David pointed his, Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, well, you're the one. Thou art the man. And, of course, then David's heart was smitten because he realized that even though I did all of these things in secret. He knew and he told somebody. Now that's, that, that's love. 
love for David from God's perspective was to not leave him in the condition that he was in, but to talk lovingly to him about that. See, that's, that's, that's love. The, the same way you would sit down with your, your children and explain to them, you know, it's, it's not nice for you to be in school and talk back to the teacher. That's, that's love. Yeah. Well, that's reproving love. Scripture says don't hate your neighbor. And then it goes on to say if you see them in sin, talk to them about it. Let's go to the next one. Romans chapter 5. Undeserved love. Now, there's nothing we have ever done to deserve this love, but God shares it with us anyway. And we're grateful that he loved us before we loved him. Romans 5. Look at verse number eight. God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we were converted, God loved us enough to send his son. Before we ever were born, God loved us. When your children were yet in your spouse's womb or your womb, you loved them. And God loved us before we turn to him. And it's first John that says he loved us before we first loved him. So it's undeserved love. There's nothing a, a boy or a girl needs to do to earn mom and dad's love. Now that's a principle we all know, but there are certain families in this world where the children do have to earn the parents' love because of the way the parents conduct themselves. But nobody should have to earn a mom and dad's love, that love should be there on the basis of the relationship. That's how it is with God. God cares so much for you that in your lifestyle as a saint, in your lifestyle in sin, his love for you was real and genuine. And the reason we call it an undeserved love is because there's nothing you could ever do to merit his love. He just loves you because of who you are. That's not to say he's not ever displeased with us, but that is to say that his love covers a multitude of sins. Aren't you glad about that? Oh, my. If, if God's love didn't cover a multitude of sins, where would we all be? Yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff that's under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it ever was brought out, it would leave all of us embarrassed. Yeah. So we praise the Lord for his undeserved love. God commends his love. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, have you ever continued to love somebody even when they were doing wrong? I think we all have. Yeah. Because, I mean, here's another verse from the Proverbs. A friend loveth sometimes. Is that what it said? No, it says a friend loveth at all times. There should not be anything you're able to do that will cause me to stop loving you. See, what's at issue is how I'm going to love you. How we're going to define that love. How that love is going to be distributed. But, but, but the bottom line is, whether you do something immoral, whether you do something that is just uh, uh, profane, there still should be people that love you. The scripture says a friend loves at all times. He that has a friend has a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Some friends that you have will be closer to you than your own siblings. Your own blood can. That's true. Mm -hmm. 
And, and, and we thank the Lord for that. Any person who goes through this life and has at least one person at some time or some point in their life that they can share their heart with, share their weaknesses and their strength with, and that person does not treat them differently, you're a very rich person. Because the average person does not come into this world and leave this world with those kind of friends. Most of us have the kind of friends where we'll talk about this, we'll talk about that. A lot of times conversations will be kind of shallow. But to get into the inner parts of our heart and to deal with things like that, most people don't have those kind of friends. I had one gentleman tell me one time, and he was in his 70s, he, after I was teaching one time on friendship, and he said to me, I'll never forget it, he said, Pastor, I'm 70-something years old. I don't know if I even have ever had a friend like you described. That's why I said the person who's in this world that has at least one. You, you, you're a very wealthy person. You, you don't even realize how rich you are. When you can share something with someone and they don't treat you any differently, no matter what it is that you share, that's a friend. But the person that as soon as somebody gossips and speaks some secondhand stuff that's not true and then suddenly they don't want to talk to you anymore or because you're kids are in junior high school and they're not getting along and because I want to side with my daughter against your daughter, I'm not going to talk to you because they're not getting along. See, that's not a friend at all. That is not a friend. A friend is somebody that's going to stick close to you like a brother. It's, a, it's an undeserved love. It's a bond of perfection that Colossians says is absolutely true. Now, let's, let's look at one more verse. Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. And let's look at Chapter 3. You know, one of the benefits of being a pastor <clears throat> is you watch friendships develop. As a pastor, you develop friendships with a lot of people. And I'm going to read verse 5 here in a little bit, Second Thessalonians 3, verse 5. This is a prayer. But one of the things I've always enjoyed about pastoring is a lot of times you know things about people other people don't know because individual family members and people share things with you personally, privately that they don't share with other people, sometimes not even with their own family. You know? And the, the, the whole key to the pastoral relationship, and if you've ever had this happen, then you, you, you understand, that the whole key to the pastoral relationship is somebody's got to be able to keep a secret. Because if, if, if you have a pastor that's a gossip, whoo, Lord have mercy. And, and I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. I, I, I knew, I knew a, uh, a situation one time over a decade ago in one of the other towns where there was a pastor who was going to resign his church. And so he came to the minister's meeting and he expressed that. To the minister, and he said, just want to let you guys know a little bit ahead of time, I'm going to be resigning the church on such and such a date, but I prefer if you guys don't tell anybody. And I knew when he said that, I, I knew who the mouth was in there. I said, oh, this is not going to be pretty at all. So, so sure enough, uh, this, 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 uh, this person was at a ministering in a nursing home. And then at the end of his message, he just happened to casually mention to uh, 40 people sitting there in wheelchairs and, and, and chairs. Uh, so-and-so at such-and-such church is resigning. Well, I mean, it was still six weeks away before the guy was supposed to resign. I mean, so 
effectively what that preacher did was force that individual to resign that day. And that's exactly what ended up happening, simply because he, he, he told something. So how do you think that pastor felt about the other pastor? Didn't feel too good at all. Uh -uh. No. And, and, and when that happens with families, if families share something with a, a minister or a minister's wife or an elder or, or somebody like that, and then suddenly they find it broadcasted there in the bulletin, yeah, in the bulletin, or they, or, or or it gets on the telephone line, and they after they've told somebody before they get home, seven other people know, and they're not getting phone calls. Then what that does is it, it causes people to mistrust people. So now we build these walls, the walls go up high, and it 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 hurts the relationship. So notice this prayer in Second Thessalonians three verse five, and this is a prayer we should pray for one another. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, and into the patient waiting for Christ. Direct your hearts into the love of God. Love is long suffering. Love gives us the ability to put up with one another. Here, here's what love does. Love says, "Look, I I'm not perfect. You're not perfect, but we got to walk in love anyhow." That's, that's what love does. And love says, okay, somebody messed up. Why don't we try this again? That's what love does. That's the only way a marriage can stay together. Yeah. Only, only, only way. If there's not a whole lot of forgiveness, nobody's going to see a second anniversary, let alone a 70th. It'll, it'll never happen. And in relationships, if you've got a good friend that loves at all times, then you still have to know that, that love means there'll be disagreements. You may not like somebody's perspective, and they may not like yours, but if there's a, a bond of friendship that's there, when it's all over, uh, we'll, still, we'll still, be, still be fine. You, you ever notice that in politics, you, you, you don't oftentimes see it, but every now and then occasionally, you, you, you'll see somebody who's really over here to the to the far left and, and then you find somebody really over here to the far right and, and then they're close friends you know, you know every now and then every now and then that, that happens well it's the it's the same way in the the kingdom of God there will be differences but nevertheless if it's a if it's a true love then it'll be a prayerful love because we're praying that we all have the same kind of love one to another because the love God gave you and the love God gave to me is it's undeserved. So since I didn't do anything to earn it, to merit it, then I'm going to give to you the same thing God gave to me. And since God had the kind of love that made him put up with my sin until I became a Christian when I was young, then that means I've got to be willing to put up with somebody else's sin until they get right with God. So if the Lord waited on you uh, 61 years to become a Christian, 29 years to become a Christian. If the Lord waited on you till you became a Christian at the age of 48, that means his love now shed abroad in your hearts, and you should be willing to wait 48 years for someone else. You say, that's a long time to wait. That's how long God waited on you. You say, well, I can't do it. Well, God did it. God's love is in your heart. Don't say you can't do it. Be honest. Say you won't do it. It's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of will. See? So when a, when, a, when a guy says to me, I can't love my wife. I say, no, no, that's not true. It's not a matter of ability. Love is a verb. You can, all you got to do is do it. 
the, the, the issue, the, the simple issue is you won't do it because you refuse to do it. And since you don't want to do it, you don't do it. See? It's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of the will. And it's the same with God. I can't love God because this happened. No, 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 no. It's not a matter of ability. You can. You've chosen not to. But if you choose to love, that's where liberty comes. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is liberty because li forgiveness says, okay, I'm not holding anything against Sister Neff. That's what that says. I'm not holding anything against, against Brother Wilkie. That's what, that's what love and forgiveness is. And, and once I make up in my mind that even though somebody's crossed me, that, that I'm going to forgive, I've released them and I've freed myself. Yeah, I'm free. Because as long as I'm angry and mad because Sister Neff won't have ice cream with us, and, and when I see her, it just burns me, and the hair stands up on the back of my neck. See, as long as I'm thinking like that, I'm in bondage. And she doesn't know it, but I've got her in bondage in my thoughts, you see. But the moment I decide uh, I'm going to walk in love <laughs> and, and I'm going to forgive, then I'm free, and I can actually sleep at night, okay? You imagine how many people there are that don't sleep at night because they're still mad about something that happened 20 years ago. They're still holding on uh, to something that occurred, but the only thing God wants us to be able to do is just say, Father, I need you to help me to release this. Uh, just direct my heart into your love so that I can love as you loved. That's, that's the prayer. Direct our hearts. So let's pray. Father, thank you this evening that we have looked at some perspectives on love and we have learned that maybe the way you love is quite different than how we love. And surely you want us to love in a way that's different than how it's done in the world. Because the world will say, I love you, but don't cross me. Father, you say that while we were yet in sin, you commended your love toward us and gave your son. So, Father, help us every day to draw closer to you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, 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 amen.